Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll profile the Chicago-based artist who recently won a Joyce Award to work with the Museum of Contemporary Photography on a large-scale installation. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to talk about the world premiere musical Lucy and Charlie's Honeymoon. And later in the show, I'll catch up with some local jazz musicians who are putting their spin on the work of a pop-rock icon. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. A Chicago-based philanthropic nonprofit is continuing its efforts to support underrepresented artists in the Great Lakes region. This summer, the Joyce Foundation is awarding a total of $375,000 that will be split among five artists. The Joyce Awards started in 2004. Since then, the foundation has funded 82 new artistic projects and collaborations in six Midwest cities. This year's crop of awardees includes three Chicago-based projects, including one that will be created by artist Regina Agu, who will be working with the Museum of Contemporary Photography. That project will involve the creation of a large-scale installation and field guide that will dive into the history of black Midwestern lakeside communities. Another Chicago Award recipient will design a new outdoor basketball court that will be part of the in-development National Public Housing Museum. And artist Marlena Miles won an award to help fund an augmented reality installation that will highlight Dakota culture in Minnesota. All three of those projects are moving forward thanks to the Joyce Foundation. The Joyce Foundation's mission is to advance racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation. This is Mia Kim, the director of the Foundation's culture program. We launched a new strategy in 2021 which really aimed to by focusing on Chicago, support the development, growth, and visibility of artists of color and arts organizations of color to advance racial equity and inspire creativity in communities. The foundation aims to achieve those goals through its annual Joyce Awards program. The Joyce Awards is the foundation's signature artist commissioning program, and it's actually the only regional program supporting new artistic commissions by artists of color in the Great Lakes. So the program is really about supporting innovative collaborations between artists of color and organizations that are based in one of six Great Lakes cities. Those are Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, Indianapolis, Milwaukee, and Minneapolis-St. Paul. For the Joyce Awards, it's about a collaboration that engages a central component of the Joyce Awards is that there's a large community engagement component, meaning the artists have a particular vision of producing a work that can cut across different disciplines from theater, dance, visual arts, multidisciplinary arts. But a key component of that project is that it engages the community in, in a particular way, and it really engages the community to co-create and participate in the creation of the work. We're looking for projects that really ask the artist to stretch their artistic practice, to really deepen their mode of inquiry into a particular project. Our goal here is that this project allows 
the commissioning organization to deepen their relationship with their communities and or build new communities and partnerships. And that's what we've seen across the board since our first choice award in 2004. Once all the applications are in, an external jury comprised of artists and creatives helps make the final selections. So there's an external jury that deliberates on the finalists, and of course, since it's the foundation, the final or the jury makes recommendations to the foundation's board of directors, which the foundation's board of directors then approves. But the jury really is involved in reading the full proposals and looking at the applications from a range of criteria that includes artistic quality, caliber of the artist, degree of community engagement feasibility of the project. And this year, we were able to, for the first time, incorporate past Joyce Award artists into our jury. And this was really helpful because these folks know firsthand what it takes to be able to complete a Joyce Award. The Joyce Award is unique because it's a longer-term project. The projects have to be completed between 12 to 18 months. So it's an opportunity for sustained work and engagement. So the Joyce Award artists who served on the panel were able to bring their past experience to bear on on the evaluation of the proposals. This year's Joyce Award class was unveiled earlier this month. Among the winners, as I mentioned earlier, was Chicago-based artist Regina Agu, who's partnering with the Museum of Contemporary Photography to develop a new installation and experience that aims to explore themes of black cultural memories connected to place. A lot of my work deals with looking at intersections between landscape, history, language, particularly looking at uh, the landscapes of the Gulf South as a starting point, but that has since expanded to include an overarching concept of black landscapes and black geographies, and so a lot of my work starts from that reference point. I work in different media, photography, drawing, installation, and writing. Born in Houston, Agu spent her childhood in countries all over the world. She moved to Chicago at the beginning of 2020. It seems like there's a lot of reinvestment in the art scene in Chicago. As someone who's lived in other cities and practiced in other cities, um, that's something that stood out to me as well. Um, Chicago seems like a place where you can really grow and develop a mature practice. And that's something that I think I've been looking for for a while. I recently caught up with Agu at the Museum of Contemporary Photography to talk about her Joyce Award-winning project, Shorelines. Part of my photography practice involves producing large-scale panoramic installations. This is a format that I've been working with for the past several years. This will be an opportunity for me to think about black landscapes, you know, more expansively, again, kind of moving from the Gulf South, thinking about migrations into the Great Lakes, historic migrations, as well as contemporary movement of communities. And so I'm really interested in spending time in Black Lakeshore communities, uh, for example, on the south side of Chicago, but I anticipate or I hope that I'll be able to include visits to communities, you know, in other parts of the Great Lakes as well. Since the project has been announced, so many people have reached out to me like, hey, have you heard about this community in Michigan? Or like, have you thought about, you know, expanding your photography to include, um, you know, just places in the Great Lakes that I'm not familiar with as someone who's still pretty new to the to the area. So um, I look at it as a way of expanding um, all of these research questions that I'm bringing with me from all the work that I've done in the Gulf South over the years and really kind of tracing this pathway 
thinking about people moving up the Mississippi into the Great Lakes and really diving into what that history looks like. Agu is intrigued by the storytelling capabilities panoramas offer. Part of the reason I work with panoramas is from a historical standpoint, it's a really interesting format when you think about the panorama as a format that was used to photograph the Mississippi and thinking about it as a format that kind of developed along with exploration of the Gulf South, of the Mississippi. I also am very interested in creating immersive experiences for people. So I'm interested in thinking about a visitor moving into a space and being able to encounter multiple layered representations of a landscape as they move throughout a room. And so the panorama is just a a format that's been a really rich place for my practice. These days, people think of panoramas differently in large part because the way we take and view pictures has changed so much. I think when most people think about panoramas now, we think about the kind of panorama feature on your phone, right? You can uh, use your phone camera to just scan a landscape and your phone's algorithm does all of the work, right? It makes this like smooth image for you that you can share and you get like a wide angle view. And as an artist, as a photographer, I'm interested, uh, you know, taking that understanding that people have of panoramas and working backwards. So. The panorama has a rich history thinking about photography and when people were kind of producing panoramas through multiple frames, multiple images, which is what I do. Everything that you see, I'm not using a computer algorithm. I'm, sh- I'm shooting frame by frame. And the panoramas that I produce are room-sized. Um, for example, the one at the New Orleans Museum of Art was a photo print that was over 100 feet long in four panels. So it wrapped around the entire interior of the Great Hall. And uh, that was done by me getting out on boats and just taking pictures. I stitched them together digitally. And so what you're seeing is the result of months of photography printed on panels that are installed directly on the wall. They're installed with folds. So it's not like a photo that's installed in a, like a large photo that's installed in a frame on a wall. It's actually printed on material that folds and drapes along the interior of the building. So there's like a conversation there with the architecture in the space as well. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm talking with Chicago-based artist Regina Agu about her project Shorelines, which recently received a Joyce Award. $75,000. There's also going to be a big component of this is rooted in community conversations and engagement. So along with my photography, I really, from a research perspective, I really uh, focus on immersing myself in a community when I'm producing work. So with previous projects, this has taken on conversations, everything from boat captains to fishermen and people that live on the water to oil workers to ecologists, um, university professors. I'm always trying to pull in different ways of approaching the landscape and history through conversation. And that's something I'm going to be bringing to this project as well. So uh, in addition to the photography component, I'm also interested in representing those conversations in the exhibition through this idea of a field guide. So text, interviews, photography, that comes out of the research that I'm doing is also going to be part of the exhibition. Agu is partnering with Columbia College's Museum of Contemporary Photography to bring shorelines to life. 
Regina and I had met incredibly casually at another independent art space in Chicago called Table during the pandemic. But I just remember meeting her and thinking, this person has good energy. Mm-hmm. So when um, someone invited me to her studio, I was all for it. This is Asha Iman Veal. She's an associate curator at the Museum of Contemporary Photography. I think, uh, you know, Regina's practice as well as her personal history and the ways that she's thinking about topography and sociology, it was just a really wonderful studio visit. I loved everything she had to say and seeing all the work that she did. And it was just kind of one of those um, incredible timing moments where the Joyce Awards application was coming out. I had mentioned to our museum director, Natasha Egan, I just had a great studio visit with this woman. And Natasha said, well, let's get her in to have an interview. What was your initial thought when you heard about the Shoreline's idea and what Regina had in mind? I think Regina and I have some crossover in our family heritage. I grew up in Northern California. My family is from LA, but really my family is Southern. They are from Texas. They left um, East Texas during the Great Migration in 55. A struggle I really didn't understand until I was an adult and moved to Chicago. In California, it's not really a part of history that we're taught or that we think about, even though it was in my own family. So it wasn't until I moved here, which was such a site of those conversations about the migration, that I really had understood, you know, kind of everything going on and that had happened. So, you know, for me, it's actually really exciting to work with someone who is from Texas and who is really exploring this part of history in a way that I haven't seen done quite the same way in contemporary art, particularly photography. I think there are a lot of projects that are looking at, you know, the migration and black geographies in really beautiful, wonderful ways. But I think the way that Regina is combining that is exceptionally special. It's so interesting also thinking about, um, she mentioned, you know, her father is from Nigeria. I'm always really excited about how people with different migration stories and diaspora stories come together in ways that I think don't happen enough. So it was just kind of this really beautiful moment of someone you know, that I could feel like a historical connection to, but also really different, mm-hmm. but who was ready to tell the same story. It's always interesting, too, when Regina talks about being new to Chicago. I think that's such a, especially at the time when she came during the pandemic, when the city wasn't open. You know, I think it's such a boon for this project because she can really, she's like the embodiment of that passage at this you know, new point in history. It's like she's been here before, but also her eye is fresh. Sure. So I think it's pretty cool. It's been an exciting few weeks for Agu, especially now that she can finally talk about winning a Joyce Award. What was it like when you got the call from the Joyce Foundation? I was super excited, overwhelmed in the best way, but it's also something that we had to keep private for a long time. (laughs) So it's been um, an interesting experience, you know, just knowing that, well, first of all, just being really honored that the Joyce Foundation and MOCP Everyone that worked on this grant was, uh, you know, it's really humbling to have your practice supported in that way and knowing that people like trust in your vision and your ideas and, you know, your ability to work at this scale. And yeah, that email was was really incredible to receive. Agu says it would have been challenging to proceed with a project like this without some type of award or grant. To receive an award of this size definitely allows you the gift of time, resources, you know, and also working with the museum, of course. Material support from a grant or a commission allows me to print at that scale, which is something that would be impossible for me to do at this point as an individual artist. You know, creating these, like, immersive, huge photo prints are, you know, it can be very costly. It's time-intensive. Having the time and the space to think and do this kind of research, especially as someone with a research-based practice, 
Um, you know, these are all things that having the Joyce Award um, is really going to permit me to dive into this project and produce something that I think will feel significant for myself as an artist, but also for the viewer when they step into the space and encounter it. Though the final installation is likely over a year away, Agu is already excited to see how viewers will engage with shorelines. You know, I've seen people interact with the work and there is like just this feeling of like overwhelming scale and size. What that does to a viewer as opposed to, you know, seeing a photograph on a screen, which is the way that we encounter a lot of photography today. So there is like a very material and physical experience that I'm thinking about. And so my hope is to create something that really surrounds the viewer, encounters them to move through a space, to think about photography and scale and the landscapes that they're seeing in a different way. And these are all things that I'm thinking about when I'm choosing the material to print on, creating something site-specific, you know, thinking about the measurements of the museum itself and the space that I'm going to be showing in, also thinking about how I want to bring and honor all of those voices that are going to contribute to this project in the exhibition itself. Um, so, you know, this idea of a field guide, and I'm using that term kind of loosely, um, a field guide, you know, maybe a more traditional version would be a pamphlet that's printed that you carry with you, right? So photography, text research, things like that. So I'm thinking about um, a field guide in an expansive sense. It could be a publication, could be something online, something that's represented in the exhibition itself, perhaps all three, but I think that that's something that's going to be, again, driven by the experiences and the research itself and also the conversations that I'm going to be having over the next two years. That's Regina Agu. The Chicago-based artist recently won a Joyce Award for a large-scale project she calls Shorelines. You can learn about all the Joyce Award recipients at JoyceFDN.org. From the south side of Chicago. And a quick reminder, make sure to check out the program's website over at theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. Check out theartsection.org. And you are listening to the Arts Section. Joining me now remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Barbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Carrie. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Great to have you both with me. Two newlyweds ready to embark on their honeymoon decide to take a left turn and rob a gas station, setting off a wild, mostly funny, but sometimes very serious chain of events in Looking Glass Theater's world premiere musical, Lucy and Charlie's Honeymoon. We find out in the opening number that the titular characters are first-generation Asian Americans, both with strong rebellious streaks. Lucy and Charlie aren't interested in fulfilling their family's expectations, though they don't necessarily dislike their families. In fact, several of Charlie's family members end up playing important roles in the story. Lucy and Charlie's Honeymoon comes from West Suburban native Matthew C. Yee, 
He wrote the book, composed the songs, and stars as Charlie in the production. Regular art section listeners might have heard my interview with Yi last week on the show. He told me the idea for Lucy and Charlie's honeymoon was born over a decade ago, though its form has evolved quite a bit over the years. Yi also talked to me about his love for old country music, which was the inspiration for the original songs that drive the narrative forward in this two-act musical. Let's hear what the dueling critics have to say. We'll start with Jonathan. What did you think? Well, Matthew C. Yee, quite obviously, is bursting with talent and energy, as you noted, playwright, composer, lyricist, and actor. He plays a mean lead guitar live on stage, and he's written a dozen country and western songs for this new show, ranging from country rockers to kind of bluegrass-tinged traditional ballads, and every one of them is really an excellent tune, really sweet melodies. What he has to do now is decide precisely what and who this new show of his is all about. Because at present, it's an absorbing, energetic, but messy tangle of a story. We meet Charlie and Lucy first. They're the first people we meet at the beginning, and they're the last people we see at the end. As you said, Gary, they're both young Asian Americans who reject traditional expectations. Some might call them slackers. Uh, I think I would. And they're (laughs) newly married after a two-week whirlwind romance. But you know what? The show isn't really about them. Because Matthew Yee, in his capacity as playwright, has given equal time and equal emphasis to at least two other characters. Charlie's brother in the show, who is a security officer, Peter, he gets kind of equal time and attention. And also an illegal Chinese immigrant, Bao. And he gives nearly equal weight to several more characters, among them the villainous human trafficker, Martin. And the thing is, you really can't do that in a musical or even a play without songs. You have to know who the hero is or the hero and heroine, and you have to know what they want. And uh, I don't know how, Carrie, how you reacted, but I, I, I feel that we really don't get to know what Charlie and Lucy want. Uh, nor did I care that much, though I found them, they had a certain amount of appeal and charm, but I didn't have a deep emotional attachment. The character who expresses herself best is Bao, who has come to the USA illegally, courtesy of Martin, the human trafficker, in order to save her sister. And her song about finding solace in the mountains is the show's clearest expression of emotional desire. Well, if if this be mess. Give me more mess. I absolutely love this show. <laughs> I, I agree with you that some of the characters should be more foregrounded. In particular, I think Bao's story, which by the end feels like it is more central, we need to see that sooner. I could have done without uh, as much emphasis on Mark, uh, on uh, the character of uh, the boyfriend, whose name, whose name I can't even remember because that's how little I cared about him. <laughs> Jeff, sorry. Jeff and uh, his, his sidekick. But I just feel like this show is really doing something interesting, and I'm always excited to see it when it happens. You know, the uh, the creator of Thelma and Louise said that one reason she chose to do that movie that way was, how do you do a buddy road comedy if it's two women? What sorts of things come up that would be different for them than in our, you know, than in a Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, or well, Bonnie and Clyde is also obviously an fantasy thing, and that's not a, they're, they're not buddies in that, you know, in that sense. But when you take people who are not usually shown as having this narrative, what happens 
to the story. And I think that's what I found is the through line, and that's what really excited me. As you said, they start with the song, First Generation Asian American Renegades. Um, and I think it's quite possible that they don't know what they want, that that, that sense of, I, I know what I don't want to be. I don't want to be first violinist. I don't want to be a scientist. So this whole road trip, in a way, is about finding out what it is that makes them feel rebellious. And in a sense, the journey comes full circle because we do see them, or at least we see Charlie, reconnecting with his family, which includes his grandmother, his slacker uncle, Uncle Jeff, and as you pointed out, um, also his, his brother Peter, who is trying to do the right thing and, and figure out how do I protect my brother from his own dumb antics and also consider, continue to be you know, a good, <laughs> a good upstanding law-abiding citizen. So yeah, it's messy. And so I think I'm agreeing with you on that. But where I'm disagreeing is that emotionally, I did feel I did feel connected to this. I didn't know exactly where it was going, and I found that absolutely refreshing. Well, okay, um, yeah. So we agree to disagree. It's not that I disliked the show. As I said, uh, Matthew C. E. has uh, is bursting with talent, and it's very obvious. And the cast is very appealing. Most of them uh, uh, doubling also as musicians in the onstage mm-hmm. bands for the musical numbers. But, you know, if the show is going to be about Charlie and Lucy and their journey of emotional discovery, then that's where the focus has to be. You can't throw the focus to Bao. You can't throw the focus to the, the security officer brother, Peter. You can't throw the co- focus to Grandma. You can't throw the focus to Martin, the human trafficker, who has two songs of his own and his own little story arc. And that's the problem. You got to give it. It can't you be. Can. You, you, you can know, do that. You can do that, Jonathan. If you resist the narrative that there are only central main characters, if you get out of that Western mindset and start thinking about there are many more stories and they all impact each other, which is what I think he is going for. Now, you may certainly argue, and I wouldn't disagree that maybe it's not successful, but I, I embrace the fact that he's not making it. This is the main character narrative. And this is the arc, and it's predictable, and it goes this way. Because I've seen that story. I've seen that story a lot. And I'm bored by that story. I'm bored by that story in many musicals, (laughs) many of which have won Tony Awards. (laughs) I was not bored by this story. Jerry, I'm not saying it has to be predictable. I'm saying you got to know where the focus is. And I don't. I didn't watching this because it shifted, and it shifted, and it shifted again. Almost like it does in life. You know, life focus shifts in life. We are the sum of the people we meet and how they impact us. And I think that is what Yi is going for. Lucy and Charlie have this specific idea of who they are or who they think they want to be. And then they learn, no, we're not actually these rebels. We're not being, quote unquote, model minorities does not necessarily mean that we have to go to the extreme and be rebels. Now, I do think where we're... I would like to see the show evolve, is with the introduction of Bao. I think she's an important character. I think what happens to her and what she finds out about her family is a really key point that stands in contrast to what Lucy and Charlie are are doing. So I think if that's beefed up, then maybe there is a sharper sense of focus. But I didn't mind the time spent with any of these other characters. I didn't feel frustrated. So, you know, maybe that's just me. As I said, maybe I have a high, you know, propensity for mess and tangentialism. <laughs> um, but I, I would not 
I wouldn't say necessarily that we don't learn enough about Lucy and Charlie. I think we just see, need to see them more in a through line with characters whose experiences are allowed to be a little bit more fully realized. And I think that character is Bao, quite honestly. Okay, okay, but if you're going to see Charlie and Lucy more, as you just said, in a stronger through line, then you have to see less of the other characters or you end up with a four-hour right. show. And I think I already identified okay. that the, 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 yeah. the, the human trafficker ex-slash-ex-boyfriend of Lucy and his sidekick, you know, the interactions with them are they're funny, yeah. but they're the ones that are most expendable. Yeah. We've seen oh. the, you know, the gormless, the gormless sidekick and the, and, the, and the bad guy, you know, <laughs> kind of dynamic yeah. before, and I think we can definitely cut that. But I wouldn't cut anything with, with the family because I think that's really important. I think what we see from Grandma, and especially some of the revelations that Grandma makes, which, of course, I will not reveal here, <laughs> to suggest that even... You know, the people that we look at on the surface and think, oh, they assimilated into America in the quote-unquote right way, maybe there were some things there. You know, everyone has their secrets. Everyone has that little bit of wildness, that little bit of violating what seem to be acceptable norms in order to move on to the next step down the road. Yeah, but you're talking about, you know, playwriting is a form. It is a craft. And the reveals that Grandma makes late in, in, in the play have absolutely no impact on the story and how it comes out. So why bother? That's what you have to either make it mean something in the play, other than standalone point that it's making. It either has to mean something and impact the story, or it doesn't belong there. Well, we'll just it, dramaturgically I, I got, agree to disagree on this one, because I don't right. think you're changing my mind, and I'm not changing yours. <laughs> what about the radical shift in tone in the last 30 minutes, when the show moves from a comedic and sardonic tone, which it's had from, from the first moments, to murderous and serious, yet retaining its cartoon-like character? I didn't say cartoonish, cartoon-like. For me, that was an uncomfortable shift. And I think it, it is uncomfortable, means, it but I think that, again, that's part of what it, it also happens in life. We have uncomfortable shifts. <laughs> Carrie, it also means that his emphasis on so many characters uh, means that the closing minutes have so many character arcs to resolve that the show slows down at that point, just where a show can't afford okay. to slow down. You know down. what? And I'm, sure you're, right. I'm sure, sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. things before it actually ends. <laughs> Absolutely, Jonathan. You are absolutely okay, okay, right, and I okay. will let you have it. Right. There you go. But I still love this show, and I think anyone who goes is going to have a great damn time. I have no issues with the talent on stage. From me himself as Charlie and Aurora Adachi Winter as Lucy, uh, you know, wonderful character turns. Mary Williamson as security officer Feinberg, Harmony Zhang as Bao, Ramel Chan as Peter, Wai Ching Ho as very wry grandma. All of them. They are all capable of good singers and several, as I mentioned, double as instrumentalists. There's an amusing, towering physical set representing some fantastic rustic. American resale shop. There's crisp sound design. There are very useful song title projections in Chinese and English. Fine lighting design. All the production elements click under director Amanda Dennert. But for me, Matthew Yi needs to wrangle what is a wild Mustang of a show into a disciplined, high-stepping strutter. And it can be done. If that's what he wants to do. I don't get to the theater as much as the either of you, but the uh, the fact that the cast was doubling as 
the in-house band. I thought they were tremendous. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Okay, good, mm-hmm. good, good, yeah, good. I absolutely thought that was great. And I yeah. love the set. I love the idea that it was sort of this mix between a roadhouse and some kind of eccentric hoarder's storage unit, um, which maybe is also, you know, uh, yeah. representative yeah. of the shambolic nature of the show, which Jonathan found, the uh, dis- you know, found disheartening and which I found, you know, to be absolutely just, just joyous and in many ways truthful. But as I said, we have very different approaches, I think, to sort of messy dramaturgy. <laughs> Did so. either of you notice that all the actors were wearing well, wireless body mics? And yet, when they sang their songs, they sang into microphones that, as far as I could tell, were not plugged into anything. I did not notice that, but <laughs> but I think that that's giving the sense that it's also a concert. Sure. You know, I think yeah. that's another part yeah, of the exactly. stage, and we haven't talked but, about yeah. it, that, right. you know, and a concert can be more of a song cycle, you know, so there's a sense that these are, yes, I, I'm not disagreeing with you, Jonathan, that it's trying to combine a lot of things that maybe don't go together. Um, where I'm standing is that I, I think if this were a more neatly made show, I would not have enjoyed it nearly as much. One costume note. Uh, in the very last scene, he comes out in um, an outfit that reminded me, we have any listeners who really are, are old uh, country and western fans, and you may know the name Nudie, one of the great tailors of country and western outfits and uh, matthew ce as charlie comes out wearing uh a a, a uh, what would you call it a magenta oh suit yeah with all sorts of uh, embroidery on it that reminded me of an old nudie country and western outfit i thought that was a nice touch so a split decision from the the critics that was a spicy one Looking Glass Theater's world premiere musical Lucy and Charlie's Honeymoon continues through July 16th. And really quickly, uh, there was a bit of theater news that that came out kind of under the radar. Jonathan? Well, uh, Ms. Jackie Taylor, the founder and longtime artistic director and and chief officer of the Black Ensemble Theater, which she started in 1975 or 1976, they have had a home, a beautiful new permanent home uh, on, on Clark's, Clark Street at Sunnyside in Uptown since 2009, yeah. right? And Jackie Taylor long has talked about purchasing the land across the street, uh, owned for decades by the Japanese American Services Center. And they finally have agreed to sell it to her. In fact, they have. And she and the Black Ensemble have announced plans to put a major arts center and artist residential complex on that block of Clark Street, directly across the street from the Black Ensemble, a project uh, slated to break ground next year, in 2024, uh, at an estimated cost of at least $50 million. And it will consist of a media and technical media and performance center in one building and a adjoining building with 50 artists units at under market rents one bedroom and two bedroom units to create a uh, a, a corridor an arts corridor in that stretch of clark street anchored by the black ensemble theater and the new center to be built across the street it's a very very ambitious project i They've already chosen architects, and in fact, the drawings already exist, so one can find them online for the new center, and permits have been applied for, zoning permits, with the city of Chicago, so um, 
Ms. Taylor is losing no time moving forward now that she has acquired the property. And she said to me, actually, over a decade ago, she told me she wanted that piece of property. Yeah. And she I did says, a... they want to sell it to me. They just don't know it yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I did a tour of the space when it was still under construction with her, and she mentioned much the same thing. Yeah. So I think she's had this this notion that she that's really, you know, something that she's wanted to bring to fruition and i think it's i think it's you know i think it's a great thing um in a time when we've seen more theaters shutting down i mean certainly some of the news from the regionals lately jonathan is around the country has been pretty right. upsetting mark taper closing oregon shakespeare festival on the ropes westport playhouse in connecticut so it's not you know to see a you know a homegrown chicago uh, institution like uh you know the black ensemble has been built not not entirely by Jackie Taylor, but let us let us put praise where it is due and give her her flowers. It would not exist without her gumption, her vision, her energy, her indefatigable belief <laughs> that yes, people want to help her out. They may just not know it yet. <laughs> I, I'm very heartened that this is a development that's going uh, that's going to be happening, um, and yes, certainly indeed. the the uh, low cost housing or the you know the artist residence or however that shakes out is uh, is a much needed. Uh, component of our of our cultural landscape, so I'm glad to see that being addressed as well. Much needed, and I hope maybe a few people will follow suit in some way. A big commercial developer like the folks doing Lincoln Yard, you know, there's no reason with all the hundreds of thousands of square feet of, of residential and commercial space they're building there that they couldn't assign a few units at you know under market rents for mm-hmm. artists' housing and get them involved in helping to. You know, create art for the complex. There are all sorts of ways to do these things. Good idea. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome. Our pleasure. We'll talk next week. You're tuned in to WDCB. This is the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with a mousy This is celebrated vocalist Palmar Naro and the Metropolitan Jazz Octet covering David Bowie's Life on Mars. But a friend is nowhere to be seen Now she walks through her sunken dream The song is on the new album titled The Bowie Project, a years-in-the-making collaboration between Marinaro and the Chicago-based jazz band. The idea of jazz artists taking on a selection of Bowie tunes might seem unconventional to some, but a closer look reveals some commonalities. Bowie himself was a great appreciator of jazz. On his last album, Black Star, he was backed by a jazz band. And it was that album that caught Marinaro's attention when it was released days before Bowie died in 2016. I downloaded it before I had a chance to listen. I heard that he died. So that kind of put uh, you know, this big exclamation point on it, like, oh, wow, this David Bowie swan song. And when I played the album, it, it just completely caught me off guard. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Marinaro began performing a 2002 Bowie song, 515 The Angels Have Gone, in some of his live performances soon after. 
But the idea for a Bowie jazz album, that wouldn't come for a few years. The origins go back to an introduction with the Metropolitan Jazz Octet in 2019. I think we knew of one another. Uh, they were familiar with my work, and I was, of course, familiar with theirs, particularly with uh, the album they had done with uh, D. Alexander, uh, the Billie Holiday too hot for words. Uh, I was a big fan of that, what they did together with that. And the group came out to see me at Heinani, out in the Burbs, and uh, they approached me and asked if if I would be interested in, you know, collaborating on their next project. And of course I was. And I initially wondered if, because they had just done Billie Holiday and because I get this a lot, I had initially wondered if they wanted to do something Sinatra related or, or you know, of that uh, vein. And I really, at that point, I really didn't want to go down that road I'm pretty careful about that as a male vocalist, and uh, they didn't want to do that either. So we were immediately in the in the same mindset, and we kind of just went back and forth about what it would be if it was going to be a composer, multiple composers, a certain time period, and we didn't have anything set as far as what we wanted the project to be. We both agreed that uh, we wanted it to be a little outside of the box, and finally, I think Jim said to me, uh, "What's?" some crazy ideas in your head floating around. And the first thing that popped into my head, I, I just blurted out David Bowie. Didn't know what time it was, the lights were low, oh, oh. I leaned back on my radio, oh, oh. Some cat was laying down some rock and roll. The gym that he was referencing right there was Chicago Jazz Octet director and co-founder Jim Gallaretto. I recently caught up with Marinaro and Chicago Jazz Octet saxophonist John Cornegay to talk about how this unexpected project came together. I think he was shocked at first, and then we, we discussed it and thought about it, and I got a list to them of what songs I thought that I could possibly do something with. And that's kind of how it started. My reaction was, how do we make this work for MJL? <laughs> Chicago Jazz Octet co-founder John Cornegay. I have to admit, I had zero familiarity with uh, David Bowie's music, other than maybe listening to it in the car radio a few decades ago. <laughs> and I couldn't uh, identify a single no a single song of his that I would know, you know, a title or anything. So we, we delved into it, listening to it. I still had the same question, how do we make this work? <laughs> <laughs> Jim's solution, which was uh, absolutely brilliant, was to talk to a couple of our esteemed colleagues uh, to create templates, basically, or, or treatments of, of some of the songs. You know, once we got to the point that we were zeroing in on specific songs, then, we, then Jim said, I want to talk to, he had four guys in mind, John McLean, guitarist, Mike Alamana, guitarist, and then pianist uh, Fred Simon and Ben Lewis. And they did their versions, of very creative, very outside the box, very different treatments of, the, mm -hmm. of these songs. And that was our basically starting points. So just to go back a little bit, uh, John just referenced that he wasn't all that familiar with Bowie's work. Paul, would you say you were a Bowie fan prior to Black Star? I was. I wouldn't say an expert by any, by any means. But particularly his last album, um, I'm always fascinated as, as a vocalist what, what other artists, what other vocalists do at the end of their career. I was always fascinated, you know, what did Ella do? 
when her voice was no longer pristine? What did uh, Carmen do? What did Sinatra do? What, what did these vocalists do, these great interpreters, when, unfortunately, their, their instrument is fading? Uh, so I've always been fascinated by that, to see what, what part of their artistry steps up at that point. So when I heard that Bowie was, was kind of back and did this big album, Black Star, I remember the day it was released, and, you know, I saw it on iTunes or Apple Music or whatever. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what this is about. It really was a remarkable statement. So that kind of made me go back and listen uh, with different ears to the rest of his career, so revisiting things that I had known, revisited albums that I hadn't heard before. So that album caused me to go, kind of go backwards um, chronologically and, and delve in more deeply. And, you know, we would share things and send them back and forth and say, hey, then check this out. And, you know, whether or not we were thinking about uh, doing it, it was nice to kind of absorb who he was as an artist and, and how he created and what he wrote. It is kind of interesting because I remember that Black Star album. For listeners who maybe aren't familiar, it it's kind of jazz flavored, and he worked mm-hmm. on it with uh, Donnie McCaslin, this saxophonist, who just by chance, like a month after the album comes out, Donnie McCaslin's playing at the Elmhurst Jazz Festival. So I met him out at his hotel and interviewed him. Oh, really? For like oh. three hours. Just talking about you know what it was like working with David Bowie, which he came on the project through Maria Schneider. Right. So I think it's fair to say that later in Bowie's life he was interested in jazz. Yeah, I think he always was, uh, but but I think he really kind of opened up to creating within his version of what it was and and collaborating with with jazz artists. It was really when I heard the Maria Schneider thing that also blew me away, and, and it, that. It showed me how his music and how his writing could work with something that is intrinsically jazz-oriented and how he floated over the rhythms of, of, of that particular song. Uh, it, it, and it was almost, um, he, his, his phrasing in, in that particular song reminded me of Billie Holiday, uh, where it's, it's kind of floating over the rhythms. Uh, and that was a great lesson for me. And just as you know, John said, they had to think about how would we how would we possibly arrange this material for MJO? How does this fit into what we do? It took me a while to, to figure out how do, I, how do I make this stuff work in my voice? Uh, because neither, neither the band nor I were interested in any sort of imitation. Um, you know, we really wanted to pull it away from, from his persona and his, his own artistry as much as we could. One of the interesting things that Jim and I discovered and shared with Paul was when David Bowie was... T- a teenager, he started playing saxophone, and his idols were John Coltrane and I believe Cannonball Adderley. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not certain about that, but I remember definitely John Coltrane, and that really blew us away. I had, no, I would never have <laughs> come up with that right. idea before, but uh, but apparently he respected it all of his, all of his career, all of his life. Uh, he respected jazz tradition and. You know, and then it's actually very fitting that his final album, he uh, pairs up with uh, Donnie McCaslin. Let's uh, stop talking for a little bit and listen to something off the album, which is called The Bowie Project. I'll invite you to, to choose, not dealer's choice, but artist's choice. What should we listen to? I Would Be Your Slave. All right. Here's I Would Be Your Slave off the new album, The Bowie Project. Thank you. 
snowy street Let me understand Drifting down a silent park Stumbling over land Open up your heart to me Show me who you are And I would be your slave Do you sleep in quiet too? Walk in peace Do you laugh out loud at me No one else is free Open up your heart to me Show me all you are And I around and wait I don't give a damn I don't see the point at all No footprints in the sand I bet you laugh out loud at me Chance to strike me down Give me peace of mind at last Show me all you are Open up your heart to me And I would be your slave
nothing else is free Open up your heart to me And I would be your slave That's I Would Be Your Slave off the new album, The Bowie Project. If you're just tuning in, this is the art section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking in studio with vocalist Paul Marinaro and Chicago jazz octet saxophonist John Cornegay. That particular song for me was one of those that just kind of jumped out um, because it's such a unique song. Is it, you know, is it a jilted love song or is it bigger? I, I read that as kind of an angry uh, plea to God or a vision of God to show himself. I think one of the great reactions that since the album's come out that I've been getting and, and I know the guys have been getting too is that the best reaction is people that will say, wow, I didn't listen to those songs that way or that's not, uh, they love them. But, you know, it's not saying that uh, this is a better version or anything. It's just because of the approach it forced people to listen to actually what the songs are about and, and that was always what... Um, what I hoped to be able to try to do as a as a singer, as an interpreter of someone else's lyrics, right? Uh, so that that's one of my my favorites, right? Yeah, and I'm a pretty big Bowie fan. I'm familiar with uh, a lot of his work. I remember uh, a week ago I was listening to the station, and your version of "Let's Dance" came on. Let's dance. Put on your red shoes and dance the blues. Let's dance. And it took me a second. I was like, I know these lyrics, but it was in such a different context. I wasn't used to it uh, because Bowie's Let's Dance is a straight up dance record. And here you've slowed it down. So I was listening to the lyrics uh, differently. That's a, this is an odd example because Let's Dance isn't uh, a deep song, but I get what you're saying as far as hearing the lyrics differently. If you say run, I will run with you. And if you say hide, we will hide. Well, one thing that we strive to do is not just have it be a collection of songs about David Bowie, uh, of David Bowie's, which it is. I always want, I'm kind of a throwback. I still collect vinyl so I listen to an album you know side A side B and uh, I love the idea of a concept and I wanted the concept to be uh, a little bit bigger than just all Bowie um, and I think the album um, there's a certain theme there's a lot of themes that permeate uh, from track to track uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, there's a mood that kind of permeates the album Let's Dance is probably the one that because of what it is surrounding uh, by on the album and because of the arrangement and, and the fact that we did it slower and just a completely different vibe, it tends to add more weight to to that lyric, which is one of the more simpler uh, lyrics on the album. Uh, but there is a there is a kind of a cohesive, a lot of themes of isolation, of, of um, just a, a little dark, maybe apocalyptic some of it is. Uh, just, you know, these were dark times when we, you know, started this project. Things were not from a day to day. It was not always good news. Com compared to uh, It's Too Hot for Words, when we uh, planned that out with Dee Alexander, her desire was to do uplifting songs. 
And, and for the most part, other than, of course, Strange Fruit, that was what that album was mm-hmm. about. This is about as far away as you can get from yeah. that. It's, it's uh, fairly dark, not, necessarily, not uplifting, but, but thoughtful. You have to think with these lyrics. I, I called Paul up a whole lot of times when I was planning what to do with the arrangements that I wrote. What do you, what's your take on this on this line, or, or how does this work, or whatever? I did a little bit of research online, but I really wanted to get Paul's mm-hmm. uh, input on this, and it helped me. It helped me to make some decisions as far as you know what instruments to use and what combinations and what kind of background lines yeah. and chords and things to use. I am curious about the the song selection process. How did you decide what material you were going to take on? The song selection, really, Jim um, and the guys left it up to me to come up with what I thought I would, would work for me as a vocalist. There's so many great David Bowie songs that I would never touch. They're just not, they wouldn't be right for me, and I don't know if they'd be right for most vocalists. They are what they are, and and I don't think they necessarily would need reinterpretation or warrant that. Uh, But for me as a vocalist, uh, and the type of vocalist I am, it's all about the lyric. And that's kind of where I live in a song. And if I didn't feel as if I could either feel the story or interpret it or sell the story, I kind of left it off the list. So I think we had quite a large list, maybe... 25, 30 songs at first, maybe even more than that, and we whittled it down, and um, there's still you know, a lot that uh, we left off, but we approached it that way. What, first and foremost, what I thought um, I could sell as a vocalist, and then we discussed it amongst all of us about you know, which ones would bear rearranging and which ones were harmonically interesting, um, so things like that. But we, uh, we agreed early on that this was kind of a trial. Nobody wanted to be locked. They didn't want to be locked into the project. I didn't un- until we were actually doing it and felt that, okay, this is going to work. This is going to go somewhere. We didn't want to be locked into doing one album of his or the greatest hits. It really was kind of free for anything that he wrote of, of any stage of his career, whether it was a hit or really obscure. And we didn't want it to, we didn't want to force uh, the album to be, this is a jazz album, you know, and, and we didn't want it to swing. There was, we really didn't put any of those requisites on it. We kind of allowed it to breathe and become what it needed to be. It sounds like the project really started, uh, at least the beginnings were like 2019-ish. Of course, we all know what happened in 2020. <laughs> you mentioned dark times. So were you working on this in like 2020, 2021? Yeah, we, um, they would, you know, we would, we would uh, farm the treatments out. They would send treatments back to me. I would record at home, um, you know, as test to say this works, this doesn't, let's flesh this out. So there was a lot of back and forth, uh, you know, digitally. Where we where we really fleshed out a lot of what we were going to do. So yeah, we worked all th- all through that. It stunned me a couple, about a week or two ago. I was looking at this and the date on whatever chart that was. It was one sixteen twenty one, and it was the same day. Oh, you were <laughs> this year. <laughs> and it's like okay, wow, that was a long time. <laughs> yeah. 
There's an obvious risk in taking on a project like this, but the hope is that people who appreciate jazz and David Bowie will respond to the new material. You know, it's daunting. You do something like this and, um, you know, you wonder, am I, are the Bowie people going to get this? Are, are jazz, jazz fans going to get this? You know, because there's, there's usually certain sacred material that for jazz artists that you, you stick to. Um, and you tend not to go outside of that box. And this certainly does. And, you know, Bowie fans are, are they want to hear Bowie. They want to hear hear it the way it's done. I would hope that it, it finds both people, uh, that they would be open to hearing this material just done honestly and respectfully in a very different way. Um, and I, I would love to think that he would think it was cool. I, I, everything I've read about him, people that I've talked to that knew him, gives me the idea that he would at least appreciate uh, that someone thought of his work this much to, to kind of put this kind of effort into it and rearrange it. That was vocalist Paul Marinaro and saxophonist John Cornegay. Marinaro and the rest of the Metropolitan Jazz Octet will be performing the Bowie Project live at City Winery on Tuesday, June 27th. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, The artssection.org there you can find past episodes and individual features all available to listen to on demand anytime you want plus pictures that go along with all the features you hear on the program my name is gary zydek i hope you'll join me again next sunday morning at 8 a.m right here on 90.9 and 90.7 fm for another edition of the arts section until then i hope you have a great week thanks for listening angels have gone Tickets. I'm jumping tracks, I'm changing time.